You know, we've been going through the Psalm of Ascent. We've been going through our series on the Psalm of Ascent, and today we are in Psalm 125. And Psalm 125 teaches us to express our confidence in God. In the immediate context, it is how to express our confidence in God in light of living in a world where we know wickedness and evil reign. We see wickedness and evil everywhere we look, that there are the marks of wickedness. There is sin. We see it in ourselves, but we see it in the world. And so part of placing our confidence in God and what the psalmist teaches us is how to express our emotions. Now, this is important because I think it's one thing to know things about God. When, when you look at the Psalms, you're like, oh yeah, big deal. You know, trust in God, put our confidence in God. And for most of us who are Christians, we're like, of course, that's what the Bible says. Right? So it's one thing to know what we ought to do. And it's the one, and it's another thing to believe in our God. But then there's this whole thing called emotional maturity. And, and, and beloved, I'll put it before you that you could be 80 years old and, and emotionally immature. Right? You could be a pastor like myself, and, and, and I can have all this theological knowledge and education, but yet I, re- I recognize all the time how emotionally I'm immature in terms of sanctification, where the Lord needs to continue to teach me what it means. And, you know, that's what the Psalms do for us. That's what the Psalms do for us. The Psalms teach us that we are not to be like t- Tim Duncan and be emotionless, right? I mean, emotionless. We are not to be Kawhi Leonard and not to have emotion. I'm just kidding. Right, and you guys don't know who they are, that's okay. Those are basketball players. But, but you know, there's one thing where, on one extreme, we are not to be governed by our emotions, where our emotions are out of control, right? But at the same time, we are not to be these rocks. You know, we are not to be these rocks where, where we're like, we don't express emotion, because that's what we've seen in the Psalm of Ascent, right? Is, is, that, is that the psalmist teach us that you are to cry out to God and you are to tell God where you're afraid, where you feel weak, where you need his help. Why? Because that's a relationship. That's what the psalmist teaches. But yet, the psalmist teaches, that, teaches us that there are certain boundaries to our emotions, that we are to express our emotions, but yet we are to have, if our confidence is in the Lord, then there are boundaries to our emotions. And so what does that teach us? That if you don't express your emotions in a healthy way, then you become insane, right? You're no longer human. But then if you constantly express your emotions, where your emotions are constantly governing you, then you're also insane. And so sanity and the way that God created us is to have a relationship with him. And so we are to be emotional beings. And so today we're going to talk about Two things from Psalm 125, divine security and divine vindication. And when we talk about divine security, I want to take the applicational angle of emotional security. Okay, so if you have God's word, please take it and turn with me to Psalm 125. Psalm 125. I want you to notice in Psalm 125 that here the psalmist understands reality. There's wickedness and evil everywhere. The world is not a spiritual utopia. Not everybody loves Yahweh. He's, he's, he realizes that. But yet what he expresses is complete confidence. It is a declaration of confidence. He's not speaking like a prayer. There are parts of 
the psalm where he expresses a petition, but this is different from some of the other psalms of ascent. He's making a declaration of God's sovereignty and God's power and God's reign while being realistic to the evil that exists. Okay, so Psalm 125, let me start with verse 1, and because of time, we're just going to take it verse by verse, okay, and then we're not going to read it as a whole. Point number one is divine security, divine security, God's security. Verse 1 says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. Now, that's a statement. He's saying, he's not saying the Lord is like a mountain. There are other places where he talks about that. He's not saying the Lord is the mountain. But if you read carefully, he says, those who trust in the Lord. In, in a world where everybody else is emotionally shaken by evil and wickedness and by stress, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. And he's not saying don't express your emotions because he's doing it right now. He's not talking about stoicism, like I said. He's not saying bottle up your emotions. He's saying, I am telling God that those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. What is Mount Zion? Mount Zion was located near Jerusalem, right? And Mount Zion was symbolic because Jerusalem was the city of David. We've been learning that the city of David was where God's temple was built by Solomon. The city of David symbolized where in the Old Testament God said, this is the place where my presence will be. So Zion symbolized the stability of God's presence. What made Mount Zion special was not the mountain or the city itself, but it was God chose to dwell there. And so because God is immovable and because God is forever, the people who trust in a forever stable eternal God are like Mount Zion, that we have emotional stability, right? Notice verse 2 now. Go to verse 2. That there's this mighty fortress type of mindset. This is verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, it's like you're surrounded by the Lord, right? As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. We sang that song that was written by Martin Luther originally. A mighty fortress is our God. A stronghold, a bulwark never failing. The Lord surrounds his people. Now when you read through the Old Testament, you read the Exodus events, you read throughout the books of history, and you read the prophets, and there is something that we don't experience. You're sitting on the 60 freeway and someone cuts you off and you're like, Lord, just send fire right now. You know, I mean, the Lord doesn't do that for us, right? Part this traffic like the Red Sea, you know, so, so self-centered, you know. I got to get to my preaching engagement. The Lord doesn't show up for us like that. I, I'm not saying he can't, but when was the last time you were praying for healing and all of a sudden all these angels showed up? And, and, and chariots of fire, or, or a cloud, or God speaks audibly. Like, like, so you're saying the Lord surround us in times of trouble. When was the last time the Lord surrounded us? I think he can, and I think he does. But so often today, how the Lord surrounds us is with his people. If Zion represented the presence of God, and in the Old Testament, if God's presence was centralized, then we look at as New Testament Christians, the Lord's presence dwells with us through the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes when we say, Lord, I'm weak right now, 
I'm struggling right now. Will you surround me? I mean, isn't it beautiful that he puts people around us? That's how he designs the church. And he says, look, you know, I'm not going to show up like I showed up in front of Isaiah, or I'm not going to show up like I showed up for Moses, but I am there. And when you look at spirit-filled believers surrounding each other during times of need, that is the picture of Zion's Lord surrounding the Lord's people through the presence of God. And God sends people. But sometimes we look at the people around us and we're like, God, that's not enough. (laughs) Who's this guy? just a brother or sister like me. They can't fix my problems. You know, I need you to show up. And God says, look, you're blind to it that I work through people. I work through people. And so so I want you to notice that, right? Now, look at verse 3. Look at the original context, this cry for security, is that for the psalmist, he's talking about wickedness. Now, when you look at our world today, this applies, because even though we don't have like this really evil, like what is, what is evil anyways? What is evil, to, how do you define that? Evil is an absence of good, but evil, is, evil cannot exist without good. There is good, and there's a standard of good, and anything that's not good is bad, but then it's evil because it's motivated by sin. And, and when, you, when you consider that, you look at wickedness. What is wickedness? What is wicked rule? This is secularism. Right, so in the mind of the Yahwehist, that's when you know I've read too many commentaries, when you start referring to, to the, the believer of the Old Testament as a Yahwehist. The person who fears Yahweh, anything that doesn't uphold God, anything that doesn't uphold Yahweh is no way. Right? So anything that doesn't uphold God and His law and the standards of God is secular and evil and doesn't, and that's how the, the world was. That's how the world was. There was Israel, and Israel's God, and the foreign nations that warred against Israel, they hated Israel and hated Israel's God. And so the scepter of wickedness refers to any government, any secular rule or system that is against God. And so you read this, it says, for the scepter of wickedness, this is a declaration. He's not saying God maybe. God, if you will it, he's saying, declares with confidence, even though he realizes that he's under a secular government, he says, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, Jerusalem, lest the righteous stretch out their hands and do wrong. And what he's saying there is, is, and when we don't know for certain, okay, the scepter of wickedness is either one, Right? It's talking about the secular governments, the Assyrians, the Babylonians who ruled over Israel. Or it's talking about one of the many evil kings that ruled over Israel and Judah. Either way, it was godless rule. And then he says in there, lest the righteous stretch out their hands and do wrong. And we know this is true of Israel's history. Is that Israel often fell into idolatry. Israel often went the wrong way. Right? They chose to disobey God. They chose to go against God. And what happened? God gave them over to the foreign rule of the foreign nations. And then, ultimately, when the true Messiah came, the greater son of David, Israel crucified their Messiah. They gave their Messiah over, betrayed him, and turned him over to the Romans and did not believe. And hence, Jerusalem today is surrounded by evil. 
Jerusalem today is constantly at war. Jerusalem today is separated from Christ, which means they're separated from a relationship with God and the true presence of God. And so the scepter of weakness applies to us today. You know, oftentimes we look at ourselves in America and we're quote-unquote used to be a Christian nation, but, but you know that ultimately it doesn't matter who the government is, it's secular rule. And sometimes we get afraid and frustrated, but, but this is a confidence, a, a declaration of confidence in the Lord, right? And, and it's talking about the eternal Lord. There is an eternal rule that shall not rest on the true land of God and the true people of God. Let me, let me unpack this more. You know, the, the more and more I study these Psalms, I'm just like, you know, if you just preach it to the people, if we just read this, it's kind of abstract. It's poetic. We're like, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest in the land allotted to the righteous. And we're sitting there, we're like, okay, that sounds really poetic and it's good. Uh, unless the land, lest the righteous stretch out their hands and do wrong. Uh, and we're like, amen, amen, amen. But then we can hear this sermon and go back out and it doesn't really apply to us that much, right? How many of you guys agree with that? You read these psalms, you go home, is your life changed? How many of you guys through, the, through this series, your life has changed? And that's great. Any of you guys, through, that's great, right? Why? Because you go home and kind of think about it. So if you'll give me the liberty today is what I'm going to give you the application in its original context, right? Then give me some freedom. I'm going to move away. It's called ladder of abstraction. I'm going to abstract the principle and give you direct application, okay? You guys okay if I do that? All right. So I want you to think about the original context, wickedness and evil, okay? How many of you guys, wickedness and evil, you're afraid of it? Raise your hand. Yeah, anybody afraid of it? I, I'm not talking about a bravado like you're an Iron Man, okay? Like you're going to take over the world. Okay? How many of you guys are wicked, wickedness, evil, the Clippers? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Golden State Warriors, <laughs> you know, <laughs> wickedness, evil, you're afraid of them? Okay. So what does fear do to us? I want you to write this down, Okay. Write this down. Fear motivates us to create our own safety, control, and certainty. So fear, and they write down safety, control, and certainty. Okay, just write that down. That's what fear does to us. When there's evil in this world, sticking with the original context, when there's wickedness, that causes us to want safety, control, and certainty. Let me illustrate that for you. Okay, and this is called emotional security. So what is emotional security? Emotional security is you're like the psalmist. You're realistic. You know, you're not trying to say, hey, let's stop crime 100%. It's impossible, right? Let's stop bad guys. You're like realistic. You're like, well, I can't control the world. I can't control other people. So what can I control? And then in your heart, there's ways that you can feel more comfortable, right? So emotional security is emotional safety, emotional control, emotional certainty, okay? So one, let me give you the example. I fear terrorism. So what if I said I fear terrorism? So I don't want to get an airplane. So I'm not going to fly. So I'm okay with doing things here, and I don't mind flying. I fly, right? But I'm just saying. What if that was my response? And what if God said, okay, Hanley, I want you to speak here or speak here. And I said, well, no, I'm, I'm afraid of terrorism. So let's just play it safe and not fly. You know, come on, come on, God. You know, I'm a young dad. I got a daughter. You understand. You know, I'm not going to go. You know, um, 
I fear drink, drunk drivers. That's why I don't come on Friday nights for, for ministry here. What if I said that, right? Well, well, you know, I have other things on Friday night, but, you know, last Friday night I spoke for the youth for their things. But what if I said, hey, you know what? I'm scared of drunk drivers. I got a little daughter at home I want to go home to. I can't control the drunk drivers, but I can control myself. So you know what? No ministry at night. No ministry at night. Play it safe. Control my situation. Don't drive at night because that's when people get drunk. Right? What would you say to me? And what if I said, I fear my kids being influenced by evil, so I'm going to hover over them every minute of the day. I'm not going to let them do anything. I'm just going to control them. So how our hearts respond is we try to create as much safety as we can. And and to some degree, that's responsibility. And then we try to control as much as we can control, and then we try to have certainty. And if that's our response to evil, our confidence is in ourself. Now, that's the original context, right? Emotional security in response to wickedness and evil. So wickedness, terrorism, drunk driving, leading to people dying or serious injuries, and the evil of this world influencing, you know, how our younger generation would be raised up and how do we control them, right? But ultimately, you know that you can't control people. You know that. You know that as, as, as much safety as you want to create for yourself or your loved ones, there's only so much you can do because eventually people have to make their own decisions and you can't really control what happens. You, you think about it. So what's the only confidence that can ensure true eternal security? It's the gospel, right? Only Christ can capture the hearts of our children or our loved ones or people and save them. And then, and then they'll make good decisions later. Because Jesus has changed them. Or if something bad happens to them, that they will be in heaven. You see, that's the only thing. The confidence, uh, our emotional security needs to be in the gospel of Jesus Christ, changing hearts and transforming lives regardless of wickedness. So yes, the scepter of wickedness shall not rest in the place of God that is taken root in the hearts of people. Where the Holy Spirit dwells, there is freedom from fear of the scepter of wickedness reigning over people. Lest they stretch their hands out and reject it. The gospel is the answer. The gospel is the reality and the truth. Now let me just take some time to apply this personally. Okay? I want you to think of your own situation. I want to speak to each and every one of you. Looking around, who's the youngest person in here? Okay, collegians and young adults, right? I, I don't have as much time to prepare sermons. I'm just making this on the fly, so don't criticize me if it doesn't apply to you. I'm just kidding. Um, collegians and young adults, okay? What are you most afraid of? Maybe. You, so for you, it's certainty. I, I don't know what lies in my future, but I'm hoping that I'll get into the right school or grad school or that there'll be a job lined up or, or that things will work out. I'll meet someone in the right way. I just want certainty. And if, if any way I can control this and, and, and I can play it safe, right? 
You know, then, then for, for, for married people, you're like, you know, I, I, the older you get, the more wiser you realize you can't change or control your spouse. But you're like, in the beginning, you're, you're ignorant. So the first 10 years of marriage, you're like, maybe I can change my spouse. I can control them. And then, you know, or I can control myself. Right? And then, and then you become a parent and you're like, you know, maybe if I can just control my kids. And pre- that, that, that's what I was saying about creating safety and control. And certainty, right? And 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 then you feel emotionally secure, right? I, I'm gonna tell you what the Lord has been teaching me lately. Lately, I've been struggling pretty badly, and I've always been transparent with you, so I'll tell you. I've been struggling because um, life has changed, church has changed, church is growing. The staff has been very patient and working really hard. Uh, church is growing, and uh, there's more ministries to manage. And more and more, you're going to see this. And this means, and when you see this, this means that Hanley didn't finish his sermon by Friday. So he didn't have time to email it into the staff, so there's no outline. So he's working on it Saturday night or Sunday morning even. And uh, for the longest time, I would, I would say, I would say, safety, control, certainty. I would say, you know what? I need to get to my sermon. So if I meet with people less, if I plan less meetings, if I run away and hide and people don't ask me for counseling, if I play it safe, then I can control my schedule better and they'll be more certain that I'll get the sermon done. And, and then I just began to get angry at everybody. Right? And, and, and I, I idolized in the last six months a well-organized church with, with more staff. And the staff has been so patient with me because I'm always telling them, like, we need more staff. And I can look at their eyes like, well, what about us? You know, I, I need more staff. Things need to get done around here. We're constantly dropping the ball. And, and you know, I'm blind to the reality that it's so selfish because at the end of the day, I just want to get my sermon done. And there's no time. And there's no sleep, right? So I think recently I was reminded to go back to Mark, which we preached through, that when Jesus went into the temple to clear the temple, it was a really well-organized operation. Really well-organized. But Jesus was mad because they had lost sight of prayer and they lost sight of the purpose of the temple, God's house, was to bring worship to God. And I realize that I need to remind myself daily that it's easy for me to lose an eternal perspective of what is important and what is not. And we can have in this church everything well organized, great assimilation programs, you know, like one of the things you know me, you know, like I want everybody to be able to plug into a small group, you know, and and we have all that lined up and everything's good. But if we forget about our vision, if we forget about what it means to be a vibrant disciple maker, if we forget about what's important, if we forget about the eternal perspective, we not only lose compassion, we lose our soul. And so the last six months have been sanctifying for me learning this and learning that a well-organized church is not a bad thing, but for me it could be idolatry. That at the end of the day, it's not about just getting the sermon done. You know, it's about, 
Are we leading the church to pray? Are we leading the church to be closer to God? Are we leading the church to be emotionally healthy? Do we have emotional security? Or are we constantly trying to play it safe, control things, and be certain? So, beloved, I'll put it before you that when we preach through these psalms, the Lord is speaking to me. And the Lord is telling me, here's where you need to grow. Okay? Now, here's point number two. is divine vindication. Divine vindication. The psalmist calls for God to do good to the righteous, to treat well the righteous. In other words, to show divine favor upon those who fear God, trust God, and seek to do God's good. You notice verse 4, it says, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and those who are upright in their hearts. Right. So you notice that there's a contrast here between those who are good and those who are upright in their hearts. And what he's asking for is vindication. He's saying, vindicate those who are under this wicked rule, who do good in your eyes, and for those who are upright. But then, but then in the next verse, right, in verse 5, he says, let me so hit the slide for you. In verse 5, he says, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers, peace be upon Israel. So if you notice what's happening here is crooked ways is in the plural. Which means this is not someone who made a crooked decision once or twice and repented. This is talking about a way of life. These are crooked people. They're crooked at heart. They're not saved. They don't have, they're not regenerate. They don't, they're not Yahwehists. They don't worship Yahweh. They are crooked. And the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Evildoers is a participle in the original Hebrew, which means that, that once again, it's a continual doing of evil. They don't just fall into evil here and there. They don't struggle with evil. They are evil. Evil doing is their lifestyle. And then he declares shalom, a holistic peace upon Israel. Right? So evil doing. So he's asking for divine vindication. If you'll once again allow me to apply this to you. And once again, I had to begin with, Lord, what are you teaching me? You see why I give you the sermon prep illustration? Because so much of my sermon prep is, Lord, give me what to say to them. And God's saying, look, I want to speak to you, young man. I'm not young anymore, but I'm almost 40. But it's like, it's like hey, 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 you know, and recently I've been getting injured and stuff. And he reminds me of that. But he's like, you know, Hanley, you have an anger issue. You think you don't. You think it went away. I said, what do you mean? Divine vindication. At the heart of vindication, I want you to see it. So write this down, okay? So the first one, we talked about uh, security, right? Talked about security. Emotional security was safety, control, certainty. Write down, anger is a moral emotion. And go home and think about that. Anger is a moral emotion. Anger longs for vindication. Anger makes a moral judgment. Okay, so, so I want you to think hard about that and reflect on it. Now the psalmist teaches us how to put our confidence in the Lord and what proper divine vindication is. He's saying, God, you do good to the upright. And then he says, 
You lead away those who do their crooked ways. You lead away with the evildoers. You see, he places his trust under the sovereignty of God in light of his real situation. When he looks around him, he sees evil. He's not absent to it. He's not ignorant. He's not like in a utopia, like I said. He's like, we're under a scepter of wickedness. There's not an evil king. I mean, there's not a good king. It's an evil king. It's an evil government. There's wickedness all around me. But notice that he doesn't say, I want to satisfy it. I want to deal with it. It should be dealt with on my terms. He's just saying, my confidence is in your timing, in your will. I'm satisfied if you deal with it. Okay, if you deal with it. So once again, let me stick with the original context and give you the application. So every time I hear of evil in this world, I long for justice. And then I actually think, I say, God, you know what? Like, you know, if someone is a known terrorist, why don't we crucify them? You know, God, just, just, just kill them, you know? And, and I long for justice so much more than I long for redemption, if I'm honest. If I'm honest. And truth is, I want the bad guys punished rather than redeemed. Uh, because, why? Because it'll bring me satisfaction. I will feel vindicated for my feelings. When in reality, it's not for us to be vindicated, right? It's God. It's God whose justice needs to be satisfied. It's God's wrath that needs to be satisfied. And in the end, our anger is truly longing for God's, you know, is not longing for God's redemption, but seeking our personal satisfaction of justice. And so I want you to think about this, right? So, yeah, again, once again, we read this and we're like, yeah, you know, God, we know there's evil. We know there's bad guys, but I want to get personal. What are you angry at? Who are you angry at in life? So don't think of wickedness, evil. Just think it could be other Christians. It could be your family members. It could be your spouse. It could be your kids. Why do you get angry? And what happens in your heart when you're getting angry? You're, you, you actually, you might not verbalize it, but you actually want vindication. Because you're actually saying, look, I've been wronged in some way. I wasn't listened to, or, you know, I, I, I shouldn't be treated that way, or, or, you know, I'm mistreated, or I don't get enough help, or, you know, everyone's blah, 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 or nobody understands, whatever, right? And you're saying, God, vindicate me. Someone vindicate me. And, and, and once again, it's a moral judgment, because you're making a judgment call saying, no. I, I, this needs to be handled on my terms, in my timing, the way that I, until I'm satisfied. And the psalmist teaches us differently. And he says, the Lord will deal with it. Then peace will be upon Israel. Trust in the sovereignty of God. And then, and then, peace will come upon all Israel. Okay? Now back to the text, what Alan P. Ross, an Old Testament scholar, he kind of explains this in a way of what's happening in the text, but for Christians as well. He says, those who are secure in their faith will hold their integrity in spite of pressure from the wicked government. But those who turn to evil will be judged with the wicked. Right? So that's how he sums up verses 4 and 5, that those who are secure in their faith, their emotional security in the Lord, those who are confident in the Lord will hold to their integrity in spite of pressure from the government. But those who turn to evil, and sometimes when we try to put things into our own hands and we try, when we try to bring about justice in our hearts, and, and, you know, we are trying to basically, we're becoming like the wicked. And how I exemplify this is what we do with our emotions, okay? Most of us in the world, you know, when we, 
When we get angry because of evil, whether it's terrorism or, like I said, when it's people who make you angry, if it's not terrorism or wickedness or evil, we know that we're not going to go out and kill people, okay? We know that we're not the police. You know, we're not going to go lock people up or or change the the laws in California that are way too lax, right, on criminals. Uh, You know, know, we we know that we cannot take things into our own hands. You know that you can't change your spouse, control them, or change your children, control them, or whoever makes you, or or change your coworkers or whatever. And and we know we cannot change ourselves, right? But what happens? When you make a moral decision in your heart to, I'm going to be angry at a person and just judge them, you're kind of satisfied by just being angry because you're exercising judgment. When you're racist towards a certain person, unintentionally, you're like, okay, I'm scared of certain people. And so it makes me more racist towards a certain type because of their religion and because of terrorism. I mean, that, that's, you're controlling something, right? You're making a judgment call. Okay, you get where I'm getting at? A lot of times, the way that we vindicate ourselves is not actually with our fists and our hands. It's what we do with our emotions and our heart. And it makes us hateful people. And once again, we lose sight of the eternal perspective. We lose sight of the gospel. And we lose compassion. And we just begin to shrink. Why? Because it goes back to the first point. We want vindication. We know we can't get it in a way that satisfies us. We forget about being satisfied in the gospel, so we go back to our tendency of what? Safety, control, right? Safety and control and certainty. And so the big idea today is that divine security and vindication are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have two applications for you. And this is what the Lord has been teaching me personally. When we are afraid... Whether it's evil, wickedness, afraid of yourself, afraid of the situation, stressed out because of the trials of life. When we are afraid, yes, we are to be responsible. But it doesn't matter how old you are, how big or strong you are. We must go before the Lord and we must act like children of God. We must call upon God with the dependency of a child. One biblical counselor said, quote, Nothing so powerfully quenches the fire of fear as the presence of someone we trust, end quote. And so when you think about it, when, you, when you're a little kid and you're afraid of the dark or you're afraid of something and your parents show up, it brings you comfort. It just quenches that fear right away, okay? In the same way, the presence of God or putting yourself in the position of a child and recognizing that the, that the father is there, that brings you comfort, And so it doesn't matter about whether it's wickedness in this world, whether it's stress in life, right? When we call upon the Lord and express our emotional need to him, we must have that dependency of a child. That's application number one. Second, we must process our fears and our anger. When we feel like we want justice or when we feel like we're afraid, we need to communicate with God. Don't internalize the fear of wickedness and evil. I will tell you a, a silly story, okay? And you're going to see how fallen I am. <laughs> For a season, in, in my old office somewhere or, or somewhere on a computer, and I, I kept taking it down, putting it back up, and then it got ripped somewhere at, at 10 years ago. So this is quite old. I had a picture of Kobe Bryant, one of my favorite basketball players. 
And whenever I was stressed, whenever there was too much on my plate, or whenever, you know, I, or whenever or something, or I would fail in some way, I'd look at that poster and it would remind me, Kobe mentality, Mamba mentality, suck it up. And then, and then when he busted Achilles, his Achilles, that's probably the worst thing that ever happened to me, okay? Because then I said, look, he went back and shot those free throws. Stop complaining. Stop complaining. Suck it up. Just do it. Take it on. Take it on. Put it upon yourself. Just do it. And I still love Kobe Bryant. But every single day, that Mamba mentality creeps up. And I forget that a snake is the serpent, right? And it's all focused on Hanley. You can do it. It's all on you. It's all on you. You do it. So then... Over time, you know, I'm like, okay, God, that's wrong. Let's put it away. Let's put it away. But that Mamba mentality, you know, when I get sad, you know what I do? I go on YouTube and watch old Kobe highlights. It reminds me of, like, I'm just like, come, you know, Lakers are soft like Charmin now, right? And just like, yeah, like, like you know, you just got to have that mentality. And some of you are like that in here. Some of you guys are like that. You know, you have that type of grit and, and you just try to suck it up and just do it yourself, Right? And you know what I you know what I don't do is that I don't process what I feel of my vulnerability, my fears, and my frustrations directly to God. I just say, why are you feeling this? Suck it up and shoot those free throws. But you know, it still comes out. It comes out towards people. And my family is the first one that gets the brunt of it. Frustration. Right? It comes out still. It comes out. And so for you, it's going to come out. So it would be better, a vibrant church is filled with individuals without a Kobe mentality. Right? So I can't think of a basketball player that doesn't have that competitive spirit. But what does it look like to be a church where we are surrendering our stresses and emotions to God? That when we have fear, that we have dependency like a child. And when we have fear, we know how to communicate and process with God. Some of you are saying, well, shouldn't we be processing with each other? What happens in your small group when people don't pray first and they come and vent about their problems? What happens unintentionally? Gossip, slander, blame, blah, 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 right? Right? So the first step before processing with other people is we got to deal with our emotions with God. We need to communicate with God. And when we do so, we will find true emotional divine security, and you will trust in God's vindication of whatever it is in his time and his purpose. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today as your children. Lord, we need you. We need you, Lord, to show up in our hearts. Now, I am praying for those who have you. Lord, we can have you. But a lot of times, for some reason, you're floating in our head. We know all the stories about you. We know we can regurgitate the message of the cross. We know songs about you. But, Lord, often we don't feel that you are there securing our emotions and our thoughts vindicating, Lord, in your timing, justice, and caring about the things, leading us to care about the things that you care about. 
Lord, I pray this morning that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. I pray, Lord, that you would prepare us, remind us, Lord, of why it's important that we have a vision to be a church of vibrant disciple makers, that first, before being a disciple makers, we are to be your disciples. So what does it mean, Lord, to be surrendered to you? What does it mean, Lord, to come before you? What does it mean, Lord, to depend on you for all things in life that we do, whether it's ministry or not? Lord, I pray that starting with me, that you would humble and break me, destroy the Kobe mentality in me, give me skills to play like Kobe, but Lord, Lord, give me the attitude and humility of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would give all of us, Lord, that type of brokenness so that we would be a people of compassion rather than comparison and competition, that our confidence would solely rest upon you and that you would be that God who reminds us through the power of your spirit that no matter what trial we face, physical, emotional, mental, situational, Lord, that we have the God of angel armies fighting with us, the spiritual battle, and ultimately help us to realize that we are battling ourselves, our own sin, our own pride, our own blindness. Lord, will you rescue us this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.